Let's pray together. Father, I ask for your help now that I would be true to your word and that I would honor J.C. Ryle in a fitting way and that the truths about masculinity and ministry that you would like to bring out would come out and that you'd give us attentive minds and, and clear heads and receptive hearts. So be on this now for the good of your church and the glory of your name, I ask through Christ. Amen. So my title is The Frank and Manly Mr. Ryle, which is a quote that someone used about him. Subtitle, The Value of a Masculine Ministry. So in dealing with his life, I'm going to make him uh, an illustration of something I want to commend to you and clarify for you, namely the value of a masculine ministry. Now, let's work with some definitions before we move into his life. Clarify some things from the Bible. God revealed himself in the Bible pervasively as king, not queen, father, not mother, The second person of the Trinity is revealed as the eternal son, not daughter. The father and the son create man and woman in his image and give them the name man, the name of the male. God appoints all the priests in the Old Testament to be men. The son of God came into the world to be a man. He chose 12 men to be his apostles. The apostles appointed that the overseer of the church, overseers of the church be men. And when it came to marriage, they taught that the husband should be the head. Now, from all of that, I conclude that God has given Christianity a masculine feel. And being God... And being a God of love, he has done that for our maximum flourishing, both male and female. He does not intend for women to languish or be frustrated or in any way to suffer or fall short of full and lasting joy in this masculine Christianity. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life, from which I infer that the fullest flourishing of women and men takes place in churches and families that have this masculine feel. So, for the sake of the glory of woman and the security and joy of children, God has made Christianity to have a masculine feel and He has ordained a masculine ministry. Now, That is liable to serious misunderstanding and serious abuse since there are views of masculinity which would make such a perspective repulsive. So, there's more that needs to be said. When I say masculine Christianity or masculine ministry or Christianity with a masculine feel, here's what I mean. Try to... Put it in a paragraph. Theology and church and mission are marked by an overarching godly male leadership in the spirit of Christ with an ethos of tender-hearted strength, contrite courage, risk-taking decisiveness, and readiness to sacrifice for the sake of leading and protecting and providing for the community. All of which is possible only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the feel of a great, majestic God who is by his redeeming work in Christ inclining men to humble, Christ-exalting initiatives and inclining women to come alongside those men with joyful support intelligent helpfulness, and fruitful partnership in the work. 
And I believe there are dozens and dozens of sweet and precious benefits that come to a church and family that has that kind of masculine feel. And some of those will emerge as we turn to the frank and manly Mr. Ryle, the value of a masculine ministry. John Charles Ryle was born May 10, 1816 in England. His parents were nominal members of the Church of England and had no time for his evangelical faith when it came at the age of 21. And they did not till the day of his death. He attended elite preparatory schools till he was 18. And then he went to Oxford and took a first class in classics. He spent three years there. He was now 21 years old. I had no true religion at all. I certainly never said my prayers or read a word of my Bible from the time I was seven to the time I was 21, he wrote. Everything was about to change. 1837, he's 21 years old. About the end of 1837, just after Oxford, my character underwent a thorough and entire change in consequence of a complete alteration of my views of religion. This change was extremely great and has had a sweeping influence over the whole of my life ever since. And what had happened, of course, is that he had heard the gospel from a new pastor in uh, his town, read a book uh, by Wilberforce, and got very, very sick. And this is what he wrote. Nothing appeared to me so clear and distinct as my own sinfulness, Christ's preciousness, the value of the Bible, the absolute necessity of coming out of the world, the need of being born again, the enormous folly of the whole doctrine of baptismal regeneration. All All these things, I repeat, seemed to flash upon me like a sunbeam in the winter of 1837 and have stuck in my mind from that day down to this. Next three years, he works in the bank that his father owned till he's 25 years old, and in June 1841, disaster struck his family, and he said he woke up one morning being a wealthy son of a rich banker and went to bed that night totally ruined through bankruptcy and every penny taken from them. I do not think there was a single day in my 32 years that I have not in my life, for 32 years since then, that I have not remembered the humiliation. If I had not been a Christian at that time, I do not know if I should not have committed suicide. But he did believe already in the sovereignty of God, and therefore he was able to say, I had never been ruined. Had I never been ruined, my life, of course, would have been a very different one. I should have probably gone into Parliament. I should never have been a clergyman, never have preached or written a tract or a book. But he had no idea what he was going to do now. No job, no future. I was going to leave my father's house without the least idea what I was going to hap- what was going to happen and where I was going to live, or what I was going to do. And the rector of the parish of Folly, Reverend Gibson, knew of his conversion, knew of his gifts, and asked him to be his curate, his assistant, in Exbury, little town. He had no other way to make a living. His parents were totally broken, and he took the job, a very strange way for such a man to enter the ministry. And he said at the beginning he had no intention of it and no desire for it, but needed a job. 
in order to put money on the table and help pay some of his father's bills. He was there for two years, and he resigned for health reasons. It was a bad place for him, he said. Five months he was at Winchester, and then he accepted the call to be rector at Helmingham, a little town. It was a parish of about 385 miles northeast of London. Easter, 1844. And he's now 28 years old, still unmarried. He had said he couldn't marry because he didn't make enough money to support a wife. (coughs) And now he could. And so he married Matilda, October 1844. And he stayed in this church for 17 years, a little tiny parish. A little child was born, Georgina, May 1846, and Matilda, his wife, died three years after they were married, 1847. He was married again to Jesse in 1849, and their ten years together, he says, were years of singular trials. She was never well. She bore him four children, another daughter, and three sons, and was basically incapacitated the last five years of her life, and the care for all five children fell to him. The children were Isabel, Reginald, Herbert, and Arthur, and then Jesse died, 1860, ten years after their marriage of Bright's Disease. He'll say more about the sorrows of being a widower in the ministry with a family later. His son, Herbert, recalls the early days of childhood. He was everything to us. Taught us games, natural history, astronomy, insisted on our never being idle, carefully fostered our love for books, To us boys, he was extraordinarily indulgent, and he was tolerant to a degree little known or recognized. The high church writers sought to destroy his position by detraction. Much as he differed from me in many points, he never suffered the shadow of difference to come between us in the intimacy of our affection. And since... The time I went to school at the age of nine, I never received from him a harsh word. His children, however, the boys, did not follow him in the faith. The two, the older and the younger, had no religious commitment whatsoever, and The middle one, Herbert, who wrote that, became a high church liberal. A very sad development, and we'll have to come back to ask whether that says anything about the man. Stradbroke was a little town. The parish was 1,300 now and not 300, and he accepted this call after he had been at Helmingham for 17 years. Years and became the vicar of Stradbroke, about 20 miles north of Helmingham. 19 years he stayed there, so a total of 36 years in two tiny rural Suffolk passages, uh, parishes. Um, during those 36 years in those rural parishes, as a person who took a first class in classics, um, he was becoming a national figure through his speeching, speaking tours and his, his writing. He was evangelicalism's best known and most respected writer and spokesman through the 1870s. And not only was he an evangelical, but he was a firmly rooted Anglican churchman. 
strong allegiance to the prayer book, the 39 articles, high respect for dissenters, loved Charles Spurgeon, his contemporary. They said nice things about each other. His passion, however, was for the reformation and renewal of his own denomination, the Church of England, according to biblical and reformation principles. So now he's 64 years old, having served for 36 years, the time when most men are thinking of retirement, and he gets a remarkable call, an appointment from the prime minister, probably because of some political shenanigans that were going on, to be the first ever bishop of the Diocese of Liverpool. And he accepts. And for 20 more years, serves in the capacity of bishop of Liverpool, moving from little tiny parishes to a city of 700,000 with urban problems he had never faced face-to-face until he retired and then two months later died, June 9, 1900, at the age of 84. Poured himself out in the bishopric of Liverpool for the gospel and for the healing of social ills. During his time, 42 new churches were built and the clergy increased by 146 Confirmations were doubled. On his gravestone, there are two Bible verses which capture the the theological emphases of his life, which I like to think of of, um, the fight and the gift. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That's one. And underneath it, By grace are you saved through faith. I think those are a really remarkably eloquent theological capture of the man that we mainly know today because of his book, Holiness, and the nature of the fight for holiness that that book implies, built on a lifelong ministry of heralding a free gospel of, of grace. So of all the helpful things we could dig into with that sketch behind us, what should we do? And I'll just be honest, I was totally governed by the theme of this conference. Uh, I I wouldn't have assumed, reading the life of Ryle, that one would immediately say all the things I'm going to say now. I looked for these things because I wanted to talk about this, because that's the theme of the conference. So just understand this is totally biased in the way I I saw him through this lens, and you could look at him through a very, very different lens than this. So I'm going to use Ryle to illustrate the nature of a masculine ministry in the time we have left, or Christianity with a masculine feel. And I've built it around eight Traits of such a ministry with illustrative material from his life. And let me just say about something about note-taking here. Um, as soon as I'm done talking, the entirety of this manuscript with uh, 20 pages more than I can give you will be online. So you, you don't need to take any notes uh, unless it just helps you concentrate. So just zero in and, and pray and, and enjoy and, and think and then, and then go out and, and click and just get the whole thing. And uh, I have 38 pages. I know that would take an hour and a half. And so I am, I'm leaving a lot out. You're going to get about, about two-thirds. So eight features of what I mean by a masculine ministry as illustrated by the life of J.C. Ryle. Number one. A masculine ministry believes that it is more fitting that men take the lash of criticism that must come in a public ministry than to unnecessarily expose women to the assault. 
Therefore, a masculine ministry puts men at the head, holding the flag, trumpets in their mouth to take the first bullets. And the women hopefully don't have to. J.C. Ryle was a very controversial figure in British evangelicalism. He saw liberalism and ritualism and worldliness eating away at the heart of the Church of England in the late 1800s. He took a stand against each of them forthrightly. And in 1985, the Liverpool Review published this assessment. Dr. Ryle is simply about the most disastrous Episcopal failure ever inflicted upon a long-suffering diocese. He is nothing better than a political fossil who has been very unwisely unearthed from his rural obscurity for no better purpose, apparently, than to make the Episcopacy look ridiculous. Two years later, Figaro in 1887, said, his name will stink in history. It is to be regretted that he was ever appointed to fill a position in which he has done more mischief than the Liberation Society and all atheists put together. Now, the point of my masculine ministry comment is not that women couldn't endure such assaults. Of course, they could if they were godly and have. That's not the point. The point is that godly men prefer to take it for them rather than thrust them into it. That's the first observation. Number two, a masculine ministry seizes on full-orbed biblical doctrine with a view to teaching it to the church and pressing it with courage into the lives of people. So the emphasis here is falling on a seizure of full-orbed doctrine with a view to doing something with it by pressing it into the life of a people. Now, behind the scenes of the liberalism, ritualism, and worldliness was, in Ra's view, a failure of doctrinal nerve, an unmanly failure of doctrinal nerve, a dislike and fear of sharply cut doctrines. Quote, dislike of dogma is epidemic, which is just now doing great harm and especially among young people, it produces what I must venture to call a jellyfish Christianity. Christianity without bone or muscle or power. No dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive doctrine. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. That's really funny if you knew what the term body of divinity meant to him. They have no definite opinions. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year, sermons without an edge or a point or a corner, smooth as billiard balls, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. This aversion to doctrine was the root cause, he said, of the church's maladies. And the remedy was a manly affirmation of what he called sharply cut doctrines, recovered from the Reformation, from the Puritans, and from the giants of the 18th century before him. The victories of Christianity... Wherever they have been won, he said, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men roundly of Christ's vicarious death and sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross, 
His precious blood by teaching them justification by faith and bidding them believe on the crucified Savior by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up the brazen serpent, by telling men to look and live, to believe, to repent, to be converted. Christianity without distinct doctrine is a powerless thing. No dogma, no fruits. End quote. Now, the point of, of calling this failure of doctrinal nerve an unmanly failure, which is my phrase, an unmanly failure, is not that women can't grasp or hold fast to great doctrinal truth. They can They should. The point is that when the foundations of the church are crumbling, the men should not stand back and wait for the women to seize the tools and the bricks and the mortar. The women should expect their men to be at the front of the rebuilding of the ruins. The point of saying that the remedy for doctrinal indifference is a manly affirmation of sharply cut doctrines is not that women can't make such affirmations. They can. They should. The point is that long, hard, focused mental labor should not be shirked by men. Men should feel a special responsibility for the life and safety and joy of the community that depends on putting these sharply cut doctrines in place. This issue is not about what women are able to do, but about what men ought to do. J.C. Ryle waited for no one He took the brick, he took the mortar, he took the trowel, and he spent his whole life rebuilding the sharp edges and gloriously clear truth to make a place where women and men and children could flourish in the gospel. That's what men do with truth. They build a place, a safe, powerful, beautiful, roomy, happy place where women flourish and children flourish. And they feel a responsibility to do that with their minds and their theology. That's, no, that's number two. Number three, a masculine ministry brings out the more rugged aspects of the Christian life and presses them on the conscience of the church with a demeanor that accords with the proportion in Scripture. So the emphasis here is falling on there are things in the Bible that are really Hard and rugged. And I want to say man-like. Ryle's most famous today for his work on holiness and sanctification. And the overwhelming impression you get, I hope you read the book. That's the one you should read if you don't read anything else. And the overwhelming impression I get when I read that book is how unsentimental and rugged most of it feels. It feels much like the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I read through the Greek Gospels, all four Gospels one time, early in my ministry with a pencil in my hand to put a T-O or a T-E in the margin. Everywhere I saw something tough-sounding or tender-sounding. Try it sometime. It is overwhelmingly tough-sounding. For whatever reason, that's the way Jesus talked. Now, over against the perfectionism and Keswick quietism of his day, he was unrelenting in stressing that sanctification, unlike justification, is a process of constant engagement of the will. And that was war. Quote, As a true Christian, 
A true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but war within. The old, the sick, the dying are never known to repent of fighting Christ's battles against sin. The Christian life is the soldier's life. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. Now, again, the point is not that women cannot or should not make war on their own sin with as much urgency as a man. They should. That's not the point. Nor is the point that she is unable to see these things in Scripture, rugged, manly as they are, and bring them out and press them on somebody's conscience. She can. Sometimes she should. That's not the point. The point is that the theme of Christian warfare and other rugged aspects of biblical theology and life should draw the men of the church to take them up in the spirit of a protective warrior in his family and tribe, rather than expecting that the women will take them up as a combatant for the sake of the church. These things are warfare. They are weapons. And the instinct of a godly man is take them up. Don't wait. Maybe she'll take them up in the family. Maybe she'll pick up the weapon to fight the devil in this family or in this church. That's not the way men think. Is it? It's not the way men think. Number four. A masculine ministry takes up heavy and painful realities in the Bible and puts them forward to those who may not want to hear them. Almost the same point, not quite. I'm talking about rugged, manly things like war over here. And here I'm talking about heavy, weighty things, and I have in mind hell in particular. One of the heaviest and most painful realities in the Bible is the reality of hell. It is a godly and loving and manly responsibility in leaders in the church not to distort or minimize the weight and the horror of hell. Ryle faced the same thing that we do. That we do. 1855, he preached a sermon that 24 years later was published in Holiness. By the way, he never wrote a treatise or a book in his life. Every single thing he published was a message or a sermon turned into a tract or a chapter in a book. I think that's accurate. Marvel, marvel. He never sat down at a desk and wrote a long, long, long thing. He just changed everything and is being read a hundred years later by writing 15-page messages. Here's what he said about hell. I feel constrained to speak freely to my readers on the subject of hell. I believe the time has come when it is a positive duty to speak plainly about the reality and eternity of hell. A flood of false doctrine has lately broken in upon us. Men are beginning to tell us that God is too merciful to punish souls forever. Against such false teaching, I desire, for one, to protest. Painful, sorrowful, distressing as the controversy may be, we must not blink it or refuse to look the subject in the face I, for one, am resolved to maintain the old position and to assert the reality and eternity of hell. And he confessed that 
It sounds dreadful. He quotes all the texts in the Gospels that Jesus used to describe it. And then he says, the question is, is it scriptural? We must never shrink back. Professing Christians ought to be often reminded that they may be lost and go to hell. That's weighty and that's painful to talk about. And the point is not that women are unable to lift that weight. They can. Not that they can't bear that pain. They can. That's not the point. The point is not that they're unable to press it into somebody's mind. They, they can. The point is, one of the marks of mature manhood is the inclination to spare her that load and what it costs. One of the marks of mature, godly manhood is if he can, if he can, to spare her that load. We admire her for embracing that truth. We share her longings to nurture with tenderness. And if we can, we carry for her the flaming coals of final condemnation. She has other things she would like to say to her children and the women in the church and others. Number five, a masculine ministry heralds the truth of Scripture with urgency and forcefulness and penetrating conviction to the world and in the regular worship services of the church. And here I'm talking about preaching. A masculine ministry heralds, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, the king has a message. There's a heralding of scripture with urgency and forcefulness, penetrating conviction that ought to sound to the world and ought to ring in the pulpits week in and week out. Now, not all preachers have the same personality and tone. Some are louder, some are softer. Some speak faster, some speak slower. Some use long sentences and some short. Some with many word pictures and some with fewer. Some with manifest emotion and some with less. Some with lots of gestures and some with few. And these differences are inevitable. But, having said that, preaching as opposed to teaching, kerusain, as opposed to didaskain, involves a kind of emotional engagement signified by the word heralding. A kerux is a herald. There is in preaching a kind of urgency, a kind of force. A message is being delivered from the king of the universe. I mean, that's got to have an impact. And heaven and hell hang on what people do with the message. How you cannot be engaged is beyond me. This is preaching. No matter what the preacher's personality or preferred tone there is necessarily an urgency, a forcefulness, a penetration of conviction that come with a divine thrust into human hearts. 
of listeners. And therefore, I say, it is a manly task. Coming to people with an authoritative word from the God of the universe, aiming to subdue their hearts and summon them to battle and lead the charge is a manly task. It's where men belong in the church. J.C. Ryle's preaching is a model. I would like to have heard him, and Spurgeon for that matter. But J.I. Packer says that even read, there is an electric force of utterance that sympathetic readers can still feel. Ryle knew after two years into his ministry, he had to crucify his style. He tried to imitate Herman Melville in his first two years. And the farmers were falling asleep. <laughs> and he writes about how he had to crucify his style. Packer refers to his brisk Spare, punchy style, its cultivated forcefulness, its use of the simplest words, its fusillades of short one-clause sentences, its rib-jabbing drumbeat rhetoric, its easy logical flow, its total lack of sentimentality, and its resolve to call a spade a spade. That's good. That's a good description. His simple, forceful clarity was renowned in his own day. One old lady in the Liverpool parish came to hear him thinking she would hear a bishop. But afterwards said to a friend, I never heard a bishop. I thought I'd hear something great. He's no bishop. I could understand every word. <laughs> and Ryle took it as a compliment. Let me choose from hundreds of possibilities to read you a minute's worth of a sermon that I think captures J.I. Packer's description. Okay. This is from the sermon... Uh, in holiness on um, lots lingering at Sodom. And the text is, he lingered. <laughs> and, and the application is that Sodom is like sin and we linger in leaving it. Very powerful sermon, very convicting to me. So I don't know what he sounded like. He weighed 256 pounds, my computation what 16 stone is. And uh, he was giant, I don't know how tall, but big tall, long beard, very imposing figure, and I'm not. <laughs> Would you know what the times demand? The shaking of nations? the uprooting of ancient things, the overturning of kingdoms, the stir and restlessness of men's minds. What do they say? They all cry aloud, Christian, do not linger. Would you be found ready for Christ at his second appearing, your loins girded, your lamps burning, your bold self prepared to meet him? Then do not linger. Would you enjoy strong assurance of your own salvation in the day of sickness and on the deathbed? Would you see with the eye of faith heaven opening and Jesus rising to receive you? Then do not linger. Would you leave great broad evidences behind when you are gone? Would you like us to lay you in the grave with comfortable hope and talk of your state after death without any doubt? Then do not linger. Would you be useful to the world in your day and generation? Would you talk of men? Talk to them. 
about sin, bring them to Christ, adorn your doctrine, make your master's cause beautiful and attractive in their eyes, then do not linger. Would you help your children and relatives toward heaven? Make them say, we will go with you and not make them infidels and despisers of all religion. Then do not linger in your leaving sin. Would you have a great crown in the day of Christ's appearing and not be the least and smallest star in glory and not find yourself the last and lowest in the kingdom of God, then do not linger. Oh, let none of us linger. Time does not linger. Death does not. Judgment does not. The devil does not. The world does not. Neither let the children of God linger. That's amazing. And he probably didn't have to read it. He was probably looking him right in the eye. There is urgency, forcefulness, penetrating power. Preaching does not always rise to that, shouldn't. But often it comes with an urgency and a force and an authority and regularly does and should. And again, the point is not that women can't do that. The point is, listen carefully, godly men know intuitively by the masculine nature implanted by God that turning the hearts of men and women with that kind of authoritative speaking is the responsibility of men. And where men handle it with humility and grace, godly women are glad. Number six. A masculine ministry welcomes the challenges and costs of strong, courageous leadership. Without complaint or self-pity, with a view to putting in place principles, structures, plans, people, to carry a whole church into joyful fruitfulness. Now, the point here is leadership that's different from preaching. They overlap. You lead by preaching, but there is a leadership that elders should have. They govern and they teach. That's what distinguishes them from deacons. So there should be some sense of leadership. And as they have more responsibility for more people, the nature of that gift needs to be also of a peculiar kind. So my point is, a masculine ministry welcomes the challenges and costs of strong, courageous leadership with a view to taking a church into a beautiful, fruitful, happy future. Leadership in the church, tending, feeding, protecting, leading the sheep, is not only the work of preaching, but also a firm, clear, reasonable, wise, guiding voice when it comes to hundreds of decisions that have to be made. Now, this calls for great discernment and no little strength. There are a hundred ways a church can drift into ineffectiveness. Wise leaders spot these early. Resist them. Win the church joyfully to a better direction. What is required again and again and again is decisive strength, not weakness in the face of resistance. Packer describes Ryle's leadership like this. His brains, energy, vision, drive, independence, clear head, kind heart, fair mind, salty speech, good sense, 
impatience with stupidity, firmness of principle, and freedom from inhibitions would have made him a leader in any field. Ryle was called by his successor in the Diocese of Liverpool, that man of granite with the heart of a child. What a beautiful description of a leader. He said of his own leadership, the story of my life has been such that I really cared, for no, cared nothing for anyone's opinion. And I resolved not to consider one jot who was offended and who was not offended by anything I did. These are the words of a man surrounded by a rising tide of liberalism, ritualism, and worldliness. They are the voice of strength over against overwhelming odds. I am fully aware, he wrote, 1778, I am fully aware that evangelical churchmanship is not popular and acceptable in this day. It is despised by many, but none of these things move me. I am not ashamed of my opinions. After 40 years of Bible reading and praying, meditation and theological study, I find myself clinging more tightly than ever to evangelical religion and more than ever satisfied with it. So remember those two phrases. None of these things move me. I am satisfied with it. Immovable joy in truth is a precious gift to a church. Pastor, not many people are going to tell you this. I'm telling you. Immovable joy in the leadership of the church is a great gift to the church. A masculine ministry looks on the forces to be resisted and the magnitude of the truth to be enjoyed and feels a glad responsibility to carry a whole people forward into joyful fruitfulness. I just think a lot of young guys are growing up in homes where, and I think I, I, think I did, in significant measure. I think I grew up in a feminized home simply because my dad was gone so much. Two-thirds of the year he was gone. My sister, my mother, and my grandmother lived in my house. I don't think that had a good effect on me. I, I could take a half an hour now to describe besetting Piper sins that I think are rooted there, and that gives me no excuse whatsoever. <laughs> Just maybe a little bit of understanding of why I do some of the things I do well and why behind the scenes. You know, who, which one of you guys this morning said, do the people near you admire you most or the people far from you? You said that? That's devastating. <laughs> you guys think I'm great. Nobody at home does. Love you, Noel. <laughs> she stuck by me, though. I know my sins, and they're, they're homebound sins, by and large. Okay, how did I get off on that? Um, yeah. Men, oh, here's what I was going to say. I think there are a lot of younger guys, I think I, I'm like them, who ha are coming along, who who are diffident, fearful, and, and they're, not, they're not charged to take a people joyfully somewhere. Take them somewhere. That's just, it's not, they don't feel like that. It's like, somebody take me somewhere. Somebody show me what to do. Somebody give me a job. No! Go! Take them somewhere. 
Take them somewhere. Dream a dream for them. Preach a sermon for them. Sketch a future for them. Be an example for them. Dream that. And yeah, you've got your crummy, lousy, no good, horrible sins at home. But don't roll over and play dead. Okay, that's the end of number six. Number seven. We're, we're, we're pretty much on track here. I'm looking at my clock. Number seven, a masculine ministry publicly and privately advocates for the vital and manifold ministries of women in the life and mission of the church. So now I'm forthrightly focusing on the way these masculine men should think and talk about women ministering. The aim of godly leadership is a community of maximum joy and maximum flourishing for everyone in it, women and children and men. Maximum impact on the world through everyone in the church for the glory of Christ. This is this, this masculine Embrace of the responsibility and sacrifice of leadership and protection and provision is not about grasping power. We've heard this. We'll hear it again. It's about embracing a burden of responsibility to equip and to liberate and to free and make a space where people can be what God calls them to be. So Ryle is outspoken in his zeal for women in various ministries in the church. For example, he has a sermon, uh, I think it's just called Word to Women, in which he does an exposition of Romans 16. Eleven of the 28 names, he points out, are women in that chapter 16. So he writes... The chapter I have mentioned appears to me to contain a special lesson for women, the important position that women occupy in the church of Christ, the wide field of real, though unobtrusive, usefulness that lies before them. I cannot go away with the common notion that great usefulness is for men only. And not for women. It should never be forgotten that it is not preaching alone that moves and influences men. Humanly speaking, the salvation of a household often depends upon the women. And men's character is exceedingly influenced by their homes. And then he looked out from the, from the church to the community and to the mission field... And he said this, there are hundreds of cases continually rising in which a woman is far more suitable visitor than a man. She need not put on a peculiar dress or call herself by a Roman Catholic name. She has only to go about in the spirit of her Savior with kindness on her lips, gentleness in her ways, a Bible in her hands, and the good that she may do is quite incalculable. Happy indeed is the parish where there are Christian women who go about doing good. Happy is the minister who has such helpers. The aim... Oh, it's in a footnote here, but I'll mention it. There was a mission in Liverpool in his day called the Zenana, Z-E-N-A-N-A. I've never heard of it. The Zenana Mission, which specialized in sending women only to India, China, and Japan. Very controversial. Sending only women. So single women being sent to these dangerous places. And he was strong in his support for this. And his main argument was India is half women and another third children, and the men can't get at them. Sometimes back in the days when saying these kinds of things would almost get me crucified in the late 70s and early 80s. I'm sure there's a lot of anger in a lot of women today about these kinds of things, but in those days it was pretty, pretty in your face. And they would say, well, what do you expect us to do? 
it's about four billion people do anything you want. Evangelize them, disciple them, care for them, lay down your life for them. The women, the children. I mean, for starters, and then I, I, the, I wrote a little book, and at the end I put 82 ministries, possibilities for women. Just, just to give a flavor that uh, those harsh words might be helped by. The aim of masculine ministry is the fullest engagement of every member of the church in joyful, fruitful ministry. The aim of leadership is not to be ministry, but to free ministry. According to God's word, by the power of God's spirit and for the glory of God's name. Lastly, number eight. A masculine ministry models for the church the protection, nourishing, and cherishing of a wife and children as part of the high calling of leadership. A masculine ministry models for the church the protection, nourishing, and cherishing of a wife and children as part of the high calling of leadership, not over against it. Part of it. The year after he came to Liverpool, um, Bishop Ryle published a book of eight messages for children. Amazing. It's called Boys and Girls Playing from the text in Zechariah 8 5, <clears throat> where in the age to come, boys and girls will be playing in the streets of Jerusalem. It reveals a rare mixture of concern for children and masculine vision. So, one of the messages is called The Happy Little Girl. And he tells the story of meeting a little girl on a public carriage who spoke to him about Jesus and was the happiest little girl he'd ever met. And he closes this little message by saying, Boys and girls... Are you as happy as she was? Do you know Jesus? And another sermon was called The Two Bears, which was about the 42 children who were killed by the two bears. (laughs) And he ends this sermon with, Dear children, remember these things to the end of your life. The wages of sin is death. He was a masculine lover of children. (laughs) Before his ministry was complete, as you have heard, he had loved and buried three wives. Matilda, Jesse, and Rietta. He had three sons and two daughters. All the testimonies we have, and we don't have many, the children praise their father. But only one of them followed their father in the faith. Packer is bold to say he was a good father and he did all that he should do. In all my reading, I would say, I do not know. We just don't know. He never talked about his home life, and the way he did the things at home. So I can't excuse him or justify him. It's just a tragic piece of his life. He wrote a little biography of Henry Venn. Henry Venn lost his wife and was a widower with small children. And he says this about himself In this biography of Venn, those who have had this cross to carry, that is losing your wife in the ministry, those who have had this cross to carry can testify 
that there is no position in this world so trying to body and soul as that of the minister who is left a widower with a young family. I know that's true of some of you. I've talked to you. With a young family and a large congregation, there are anxieties in such cases which no one knows but he who has gone through them. Anxieties which can crush the strongest spirit and wear out the strongest constitution. And my point is simply this. Enduring that and being there for those little boys, the three boys. The the oldest girl was 13 when his second wife died after 10 years of marriage. She was able to help mainly with the little girl, the other little girl, Isabella. But the three boys fell largely to him. No wife, a 13-year-old daughter, little baby girl, and three boys under 13 fell to him. And my point is that burden is part of the leadership calling. That's not alongside leadership. It's not church, family, God, or something like that. It's whole. The whole thing is God's calling in leadership. So from these eight glimpses, and we could do a lot more. I left out two when I wrote this, but just from these eight um, into the glimpses into the value of, of a masculine ministry, I commend it to you. I commend a masculine ministry to you. I commend Christianity with a masculine feel to you. And I think the frank and manly Mr. Ryle would commend it also. I commend it because it fits the way God is in the triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I commend it to you because it fits the way he created man as male and female calling the man to bear unique responsibility of headship. I commend it to you because it fits the way God has ordered the church with godly men as her elders. And I commend it to you because it fits the way our hearts were made to sing, male and female, when men and women exult in each other's enjoyment of God as our final and all-satisfying destiny. So, Father, as we have listened to some of J.C. Ryle's way, I pray that you would sift these words so that what has been true, biblical, and helpful would have a remarkable sticking power. And anything that's been amiss or imbalanced would fall out and not be contaminating in any way. And I pray that the women and the men and the children in our churches in this kind of community, led by this kind of masculine leadership, would be thrilled and would flourish in the fullest biblical exercise of all their gifts. I ask this in Jesus' great and holy name. Amen.